and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hid them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flux that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the folds, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, we shall tie this scarlet cord. You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you will gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his head, on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, 
they came down from the hills, and they passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Church, go ahead and be seated. Thank you all for being here this morning. It is such a great privilege and honor. Thank you, brother. Uh, privilege and honor to be here with y'all and open the word. Uh, as we just walk through and talk through with uh, Gabriel reading Joshua chapter 2, I had a side conversation with Joshua, and he said if you all would like, he would read through the entirety of Scripture and lease that to you for only $19.99 a month. Uh, kind of a dwell app kind of thing. He would read Scripture to you. Now, I'm thankful for Gabriel and his influence on the church and that he would stand here and read God's Word. Today, we're going to be talking through, recapping what we just read, looking at Rahab. But before we get there, I want to have a, a, a little experiment. Because this past week, I was uh, scrolling through my phone, you know, doing the social media binge out for just a little bit, just a little bit. And uh, I found this game that, was ha that, that happened where someone would start a lyric to a song and someone else would finish it. But the twist is, if you don't finish the word correctly or finish the lyric correctly, you get doused with water. Does that make sense? All right, so we're going to try something. I'm going to start a lyric to a song that I want you to finish. And if you get it wrong, that's what this is for, all right? So I hope you, first service got it right. I hope you can get it right too. It should be easy. I'm not going to sing it because if I sing, y'all going to leave, all right? So I'm just going to talk it say it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Being, see, you're good. You're good. Everyone's great. That song was written in 1772, and to this day, to this day, is played or performed over 10 million times a year. 10 million times a year. What makes this song so much sweeter is the history behind it, is the background behind the song. John Newton, who wrote it, was, as the song says, a wretch in need of this amazing, saving grace of God. You see, John had a, had a pretty rough, rough childhood. It wasn't a good one. But not only was his childhood bad, he, he, he did a stint in the Royal Navy that was just as bad. And through a continual uh, gamut of bad decisions, John Newton became a notorious slave trader. And one day while he was uh, sailing a ship off the coast of Ireland, this, this massive storm comes up. And it's, it's capsizing his boat. Men are being thrown overboard. They're drowning in the sea. There's holes in the hull of the ship, and it's taking on water. And in a moment of desperation, John just cries out, Lord, would you save us? And the story says that miraculously the cargo in the ships shifted to fill the holes, to stop the water from coming into the boat. And it allowed this boat to sail for the next 11 hours through the storm and to their destination. This is a day that would forever mark the life of John because it was a series of events that took place that brought him to his knees in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we understand the gospel, when someone is encountered with the grace of God, everything changes. So John, who once was a notorious slave trader, now becomes this advocate for the, ab for, to the abolishment of the slave trade. He would be a great influence to a man named William Wilberforce who would lead the British Parliament to pass the act to abolish the slave trade. You see, he did not allow his past to dictate his future based upon the moment that he came to know the Lord. 
in his old age, he began to forget things. But he would not forget two things, that John himself was a great sinner, but that Jesus Christ was a great Savior. He couldn't believe God's grace and his mercy would reach down into such depravity, to such vile sins that were committed to save a man such as him. And this is why he wrote the beautiful song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is not this catchy tune that's going to get the church going and, and all of those different things. It is a somber, reflective tune that allows us to realize that no one is outside the reach or the grace of God, no matter what you've done, no matter the sins you've committed or the history you have in your own life, there is not one who is outside the reach and the grace of God. And I believe this song ties beautifully to what Joshua, or excuse me, Gabriel just read in Joshua chapter 2. Because it is a story of God saving a pagan prostitute woman and using her in a very, very important way to bring about the destruction of Jericho. When we read the story of Rahab, church, we have to grasp the thought again that there is not one who was too far gone or outside the reach of God. And in his hand and in his power, there is not one disqualified from taking land that he calls people to go and take. Last week, we learned that it takes strength and courage to build God's kingdom. God promised to give Israel the land flowing with milk and honey, but there's a, there's a thing you have to do here. You actually have to go and take it. You have to put your hand to the plow and go to work and be faithful to God, knowing that this is not going to be an easy thing. And I think more often than not, we fall into the category that when the Lord calls us to do something, we think it should just plop in our hand and be so easy. I don't want to burst your bubble this morning, but I'm going to because it's not going to be easy. Anything that the Lord calls you to will be difficult because the world is against you. But you have to understand he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and walk in faithfulness to what he's calling you to do. Think about it. These people had to step into many fierce battles with warriors that were probably these massive dudes that looked terrifying. God called these people to go and take over cities that were well fortified with these massive walls. And on top of that, there was a city that was surrounded by this moat with no bridge to get across. So you figure that one out. But no matter the, the hill we have to climb or no matter the fortified city that God calls us to go and take, if God has truly called you and he is in the middle of it, he will accomplish what he set you out to do. It honestly reminds me of a time that I spent in, in Thailand for six weeks. Uh, I went over there and was blessed to do an internship with our Bangkok campus. And in that time, uh, David McCayman, who, who planted the church there, took us to Mesat, which is on the area of, uh, it's on the border of Thailand and Burma. And there's literally this massive raging river that separates the two. It's probably as wide as this room. And, it, and when I say river, it's not like a lazy river that you go into. You could whitewater raft down this thing, and it would be awesome. And I'm thinking in my head, there, there's people in Burma across this river that are trying to seek refuge, running away from the, the people trying to murder them for following Jesus. And in my head, I'm like, right, bro, I, I, was, I, I didn't weigh as much as I weigh now back then, and I still couldn't cross that river. I wasn't fit enough to cross that river. 
But I remember the story of this young man who felt that the Lord had given him the ability and the desire to cross this river into Burma, to take food, to take supplies, to take Bibles, to the followers of Jesus, to empower them and embolden them on their journey. And oh, by the way, not only did he have to cross this river, there's a mountain on the other side, and on that mountain is riddled with landmines. Many people would think, man, that's a game of chance. I don't know if that's going to work out. But again, if the Lord calls you and you step in faithfulness, he will be with you to bring what he is trying to work in you to completion. It's not going to be easy. You may lose sections of you. As many young boys and young girls that I met have. Walking around with, without an arm or walking with a prosthetic leg because they had stepped on a landmine running to take refuge. But they're here. And every night they would gather to worship the Lord because they believed he was faithful. And in his name and in his power, they could go and do what he's asking them to do. The taking of land is often outside of our abilities. You may be sitting right now looking at things in your life that you feel the Lord has moved you to do. And it looks impossible. And I want to tell you, in your own accord, absolutely is impossible. You can't do it. But if you stand on the cornerstone and you're faithful to him, he will lead you. For Israel, that first step was taking Jericho which is about five miles beyond the Jordan River. It's a well-fortified city surrounded by these massive walls. And Joshua 2 opens up with Joshua sending two spies to go on this like splinter cell mission to get intel and come back and tell him what's going on. But the beautiful thing about this, though, is this isn't Joshua's first go-around. If you remember back, Joshua was discipled by Moses, who sent Joshua to do the very same thing that he sent these men to. And if we zoom out from this for a moment, allow this to speak volumes to the discipleship that needs to take place in your life. If we can be honest with ourselves here for a moment, everyone in this room won't always be in this room. We may die. We may move away. We have an allotted time here, and we have to, in our discipleship, zoom out and not look at the, the little momentary day things we want people to do. We need to teach them the entirety of God's word because there will be a day they won't be able to come back and get advice from you. They need to know all that God has commanded them to do. So when the time does come, for them to be obedient to what God is calling them to do. They'll know where to turn and they will know where to step. And this is what led Joshua in sending those spies strategically to where he sent them. That's why they went and met a prostitute named Rahab. They wanted to be faithful to God. And in the spies' faithfulness, Rahab became the first Canaanite convert. And she was used in such a powerful way that she is mentioned in the very genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, Rahab, she's mentioned eight times in the scriptures. In six of those, there is a very specific descriptive noun attached to her name. Rahab, the prostitute. 
And as I was kind of studying and reading over this, I found that many people often thought this was degrading to her. This was downplaying her uh, importance. I have to disagree holistically. This is a humbling factor. That in spite the fact that Rahab was a prostitute woman, God used her for a great purpose. And I think and hold fast to the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But you might ask them, why does Rahab have prostitute attached to her name if she's a new creation? It's a reminder. It's a humbling factor that we must hold fast to in our own lives. Think about your past, the things that you've done, the things that I've done. Yet God has saved many of us in this room, and he's using us for his purposes and his will to be done. When we look at Rahab and we see Rahab the prostitute, allow it to be a moment that speaks volumes to you. That no matter of what you've walked through, no matter what you come in here bearing, I don't care if you've walked through abortion. I don't care that you've walked through cheating on your spouse. I don't care that you've walked through lust and greed and gluttony and all of these different things. You're not outside of the reach of God. And in his reach, he can bring healing to those wounds. He gives forgiveness of sin. He can restore marriages. He can heal deep wounds and scars in your life. But we've got to be faithful to cry out to him and know that in so doing, as his children, there is nothing left for you but grace and mercy. Your healing process will not be easy. It will not be fun, but it's worth it. And when we look at Rahab, we can see that despite her past, God used her. You see, the, the spies knew the lifestyle of a prostitute, the lifestyle of a prostitute. More often than not, they would be around taverns and things like that or live in the tavern. And this would be a great place if I'm a spy to go gather intel when someone's getting a little loose-lipped and drinking too much that night, trying to drown out a hard day. But the spies here, they're nomads, so they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So I don't think there's a strong enough drink to help those dudes blend into what's going on around them. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So they get busted. The king knew that Rahab was harboring the spies and sent word to her to overturn them. If you understand some context a little bit here, prostitutes in that time period were often used as like snitches and moles and all those different things because they had a specific set of skills to get information from people. And the king would use those to his advantage to figure out what's going on in his kingdom or even other kingdoms. So they come to Rahab's doorstep and ask for them to be overturned. And in the mind of the king, man, it's no big deal. She's going to overturn them to me. She's giving me information, all of those different things. But I want to remind you of what happens. Look at verse 4. But the, women, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them 
But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as to the Jordan, as the for, and the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, for a moment, we need to pause here. Because in this passage that we just read, there is a glaring issue that many people have debated, debated about. That the fact that Rahab lied. Rahab lied. There have been countless Christian ethicists that have spent hours chatting about, writing about, debating about, I would probably say arguing about <laughs> the very fact that Rahab lied. And most theologians would approve of her actions, but not her message. The means do not, or excuse me, the end does not justify the means. It's not okay that she lied to protect someone. You see, lying is, is one of the Ten Commandments. If we understand the the, the character that's set here about the image of God and his, his will being done, we understand that lying is outside of the character of God. In the scriptures, we see Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So lying is outside of the character of God. The end does not justify the means. I will make a point here that this is lack of discipleship in Rahab's life. This is lack of discipleship in Rahab's Life. So Rahab, she did not have to rat them out, but she also didn't have to lie. She could have trusted the sovereignty of God to keep them safe, to hide them as the men were searching for them. But this isn't the point of the sermon or a road I want to run down too far, but I want to make that clear. Because I want to warn you, if we are not cautious, we will miss the forest in spite of the trees. So, the king's men, they take off after the spies, and they shut the city gates, locking the spies inside of Jericho. And then in this moment, Rahab turns and tells the spies, I know your God. He has worked many miracles, and he has given you this land. He has parted the Red Sea. He has killed the Egyptians. He has defeated all of your enemies, and he alone has brought you to this point. And out of this testimony that she unravels the rap sheet of God for a moment to see all of the things that he's done. She believes Israel's God is the one true God who created everything, who is in charge of everything and over all things and in light pleads for mercy on her and her family. Look at the response that takes place in verse 14. And the men said to her, our life for yours. Even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. You see, Rahab's house was built into the city wall. So the spies were, they were let out of another way, a window on the backside. And, and as the, the, the spies go out, she ties this scarlet cord on her window. Now, this story is a wild one to tell and really to, to unpack, but it's not about recon missions and spies and all those different informations. Chapter 2 here is a reminder that to Israel that salvation isn't just for the Jews. It's for all people. It's for all people. Church, it's not about who you are. It's not about what you have done or haven't done. It's about who Christ is. 
and everything that he has done and accomplished. And we should see this and hold fast again to the truth that there is none too far gone and outside of the reach of God. None outside of the reach of God. I really believe that this scarlet cord that hung from her window was much more of a sign to the spies when they come back for protection. I believe it was a symbol of salvation. Think about it. You remember Passover? When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he commanded them to kill a one-year-old spotless lamb and take that blood and put it on their doorpost. And whoever was inside of that house, they would be passed over from the judgment of God that would take place. You see, they heard God and they believed in him. So they moved to action to do as he said. And God was so faithful to pass over their household. Rahab's home was marked by a scarlet cord and all who entered it would be safe from the impending doom coming against the people. Rahab had all of this knowledge and understanding of who God is. And it brought her to this saving faith. And then that saving faith produced actions in her life. It produced movement in her life. She didn't hear these things and then be still or ignore the call of God. She heard it, believed in it, and moved. But Ephesians 5, 2, 8 through 9, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is the key here. Not your works. Nothing you do produces salvation in your own life. It is by faith alone in Christ alone that we are saved. There's no other way around it. And our faith isn't this like warm, fuzzy feeling that we get of like a rainy Sunday evening wrapped up in a blanket on the couch. No, faith produces action. We must move at the call of God. Rahab had all of the knowledge that she needed to have faith in Israel's God. So she moved, tied that cord, and began to make preparations. And I think far often we think we're good enough. I've heard it, even in my own family. I'll be all right. I, I, I'll hold the door open for old ladies. I'm good. I don't watch pornography. I'm fine. Don't, you don't need to worry about me. God will find favor on me based upon the things that I'm doing. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I think that's why I'll be able to get into heaven one day. It's because I'm a good person. But church, you need to understand one thing. Our God does not grade on a curve. He demands perfection. And I don't care how good you are in this life right now. You've already missed the mark. Before you let out a cry coming out of your mother's womb, you missed the mark. Because of what took place in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We have inherited sin. Now, if you don't know what inheritance is, it's more often known when someone dies, you get their things. Good, bad, or indifferent. Some of you might get a house one day through an inheritance or some money. 
Some of you might get a pinto. It's fine. It happens. But here, Adam and Eve give to us, based upon their rebellion, sin. We inherit their sin, so therefore we are already outside of the mark. And it does not matter how many good things you do in your life. You do not begin to step back into the grace of God based upon your works. See, this is the beauty here. Because our Heavenly Father understood this. It's why he sent his son Jesus. Because he didn't miss the mark. He was born of a virgin. He didn't have inherited sin. He was tempted in every single way that we were, yet without sin. And at the end of his life, what did he get for it? He was crucified. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was belittled. The creator stepped into creation to save us. Because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. He was nailed to that cross and drank every last drop of the wrath of God. And then he was laid in a tomb. Because he died. And the beautiful part about this is that it does not end there. The power of God, Jesus rose again. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Just as we just interceded for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. He is interceding for us by name in this moment. It's a beautiful thing to understand that it is only by Christ that we are saved. It is only in his blood and by our faith in what he has done that we are saved. You see, the reformers, they coined a term to describe this salvation by faith alone. They called it alien righteousness. Now, what this does not mean is that aliens are accounted righteous, that they saved, or that they even exist. Okay, we're not going to go down that conspiracy theory. We can talk about it later. You can talk about it in your small group or something like that later on. But what this does mean is that our righteousness comes from another place. It's not in the white knuckle bootstraps effort that I get this righteousness. It's in his accomplished work, and he gives it to us because we repent and place faith. It is imputed to us. It is given to us based upon his work. And again, we have to understand it is not by our ability, our intellect, our effort, our bank account, our background, our race, our ethnicity, our language, none of that. It is only by grace through faith in Christ alone. And in that moment... When we are brought to this saving faith, we need to be moved to action. There has to be movement in our lives. Hebrews 11:31 says, "By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies." Now this, this section might hang up some people. We'll talk about it. James 2:24 to25. Says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You see, Rahab's faith resulted in a movement and work in her life. She was absolutely saved by faith. By believing in God, she was moved to hide the spies. 
I truly believe that before she opened the door, based upon what the Lord has done and her knowledge, that she had been brought to a saving faith. That is why she welcomed them in, and that is why she hid them from the king. Because let me tell you, if a spy comes into my house and I'm not a believer and I don't know this dude, I'm giving you up. I'm not getting in trouble for you. I'll snitch. <laughs> but Rahab's work gave proof that she was a believer. If you think back to the gospel of Matthew, you will know a tree by its fruit. Church, let me ask you, what fruit are you putting forth in your life? If any, it's because of this faith that she was willing to put her life on the line and risk everything. You see, we can't encounter the grace of God and be the same. When we encounter, when we encounter that grace, that saving faith, everything in our life must change. And Rahab's actions proved her faith was real and her life was changed forever. What do my actions in my life prove? You see, many people will proof text that James passage to make the argument that you can work to the Lord. This is the beauty and the understanding that you need to read the entirety and the full counsel of God's word pulling random verses out, you can piece together anything you want to. But that may or more than likely not be what God is trying to communicate to you. I've seen people even do it in such a way that they created this devotional, that they pulled out a verse and put it in this devotional to inspire somebody, but it was spoken by the devil. <laughs> Satan said it and they put it in a devotional. Read the Bible. <laughs> In the full entirety. This is vital for us. Because if we don't get this factor, that you aren't good enough, I'm not good enough, we'll constantly work for the approval of God. And that is a miserable way to live. A miserable way to live. Because we come in here with all different struggles and backgrounds and sins. We bring baggage and we bring scars. And we think licking our wounds will make everything better. I want you to understand the fact that it took me a long time to really grasp is that my wounds are only healed in Christ. Yes, I will have scars, but they're healed. And they allow me to remember the faithfulness of God in my life. Because when I look at 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, that says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God.
And then we read verse 11 to even add to that. That says, and such were some of you. We must look at ourselves in the mirror. And understand that absolutely our sin deserves the full wrath of God. But we read on in verse 11 to hear, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It does not say in the name of CJ or anything that I have done. I can't get these stains out of my garment. It is only when I'm washed with the blood of Christ that I'm made new. It's because of faith that I have been washed with the blood of Christ. It's because of faith that I am a new creation. And therefore, we must be moved to action. If I look out into your life and and, and examine all the things that you're doing and you say, man, I'm a believer, but all you have is couch potato faith, meaning that you don't do anything, you don't talk about the goodness of God, you don't read your Bible, you don't pray with your family, family, you don't evangelize, you don't fight sin, you don't have conviction of sin. I will go toe-to-toe with you to tell you, you've not really experienced the grace of God because nothing has changed in you. When we experience that saving grace, we're moved. Everything, I don't, everything changed. I don't forget what I've been through. If I believe holistically in the sovereignty of God, he has brought me through the storms that I've walked through with great intentionality to retool those things to be used for his kingdom later. To bring people to faith that I would not be able to have a conversation with had I not went through this. I believe this is the same thing for you. So church, again, we have to ask, what fruit are you bearing in your life? Rahab's faith immediately moved her to action to put her life on the line. Do do we have that same faith? Do we have that same motivation? Are we willing to step out into the battle line and really fight? Because hear me, we have plenty of things that we can fight for. We can fight for our families. You can fight to sit down and open the word with them and have family worship. Many of you need to go to uh, Planned Parenthood on the front lines and fight against abortion and fight for the image of God. Many of you need to fight addiction in your life. Many of you need to fight the anger that's brewing up inside of you. Many of us need to go and and fight for our families to know the Lord. Be willing to speak. Put your relationship with that person on the line for the sake of Christ. We must be willing. If we really have faith in who God is to move. Because if we look back in the scripture 
And if you look back on your life even now, hasn't God been faithful? So why do we think now in what we're moving through that he won't be faithful again? So bring everything to him and lay it at his feet and ask, Father, what do you want from me? Here's my yes. I want to be faithful to you. Show me where to go and what to do. Because think about it. If we all in this room took a moment to take a step in faithfulness to God, what would happen? I'll tell you, revival. If we would simply be willing to speak the name of Christ, to share the gospel with people, step out into areas that make you very uncomfortable. If we would stop looking at the person across the aisle or across the cubicle at the workplace and say, at least I'm not as bad as them. And say, no, I am as bad as them. I have sin just like they have sin. And they need Jesus just as much as I do. So I must go. The wake that would take place, not only in our city, but in our world. So I think to close out this morning, what we need to do is have another time of honest, intentional prayer. Because some of you believers in the room might be sitting here saying, I agree holistically, but I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. First and foremost, we go before the Lord. And then out of that, we conversate with brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear me, a non-believer will not understand what the Lord is doing in your life. What you need to tell them is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. And if you're in this room and you're not a believer, the first step you need to take is to bow. To lay your life down at his feet. To say, Father, I can't do it. I I don't know where to go. I can't get to heaven. It is only when I place my faith in you, King Jesus, will that happen. And repent. Hear me. It will be the hardest thing that you will ever do because your life will change if you really do it. But every last drop that is shed of your life and tears from your eyes is worth it. our heavenly father saw so fit to send his son and every last drop of his life was laid willingly on the cross so that we a broken wretched vile people would have forgiveness in him so if that's you let's talk Quit wasting time. Just like Rahab ran all over her house making preparation and bringing people in for the time that they would come back. It is our time to run all over our house making preparation for Christ to come again. Because when he comes again, it's too late for repentance. And we don't have a date nor time. 
So get off of the couch and move in faithfulness to God. So church, I'm going to pray. And after that, I want you to pray. You can, again, come up to the altar. You can turn around your seat. You can sit there. If you need to go talk to somebody, go talk to somebody. Heavenly Father, thank you that you save the vilest of sinners of which I am included. Thank you that you use broken people to bring about your purposes. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die to raise him again that we might have forgiveness and be counted as your children. And as your child, I come, Heavenly Father, and ask for wisdom. I ask for clarity where we need to move. Holy Spirit, bring back, bring about, illuminate where we must step, where we must go. Because you have not called us to a life of laziness. You have not called us to a life of passivity. You came and moved. You stepped out of the, the comfort of your kingdom into the depraved world and into the depths of our sin, and you moved in faithfulness to your Father, King Jesus. And we ask now that we would be a people, as your children, to move in faithfulness to you. Holy Spirit, bring clarity to what we must do. we know we must move but Father as we sang this morning we don't want to move without you King Jesus we ask many great things of a great God knowing that you hear our cries and you do not ignore them so we ask now Heavenly Father that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven 